Section 11 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Thomas Carlyle, Part 2. We note at this time in Carlyle's writings, on the whole, a cheerful view of human life in spite of sorrows, hardships, and disappointments, which are made by divine providence to act as healthy discipline. We see nothing of the angry pessimism of his later writings. Those years at Craigenputtock were healthy and wholesome. He labored in hope and had great intellectual and artistic enjoyment, which reconciled him to solitude, the chief evil with which he had to contend, after dyspepsia. His habits were frugal, but poverty did not stare him in the face, since he had the income of the farm. It does not appear that the deep gloom which subsequently came over his soul oppressed him in his moorland retreat. He did not sympathize with any religion of denials, but felt that out of the jargon of false and pretentious philosophies would come at last a positive belief which would once more enthrone God in the world. After writing another characteristic article on biography, he furnished for Fraser's magazine one of the finest biographical portraits ever painted, that of Dr. Johnson, in which that cyclopean worker stands out with even more distinctness than in Boswell's life as one of the most honest, earnest, patient laborers in the whole field of literature. Carlyle makes us almost love the man, in spite of his awkwardness, dogmatism, and petulance. Johnson, in his day, was an acknowledged dictator on all literary questions, surrounded by admirers of the highest gifts, who did homage to his learning. A man of more striking individuality than any other celebrity in England, and a man of intense religious convictions in an age of religious indifference. We now wonder why this struggling, poorly paid, and disagreeable man of letters should have had such an ascendancy over men superior to himself in learning, genius, and culture, as Burke and Gibbon doubtless were. Even Goldsmith, whom he snubbed and loved, is now more popular than he. It was the heroism of his character which Carlyle so much admired and so vividly described, contending with so many difficulties, yet surmounting them all by his persistent industry and noble aspirations never losing faith in himself or his maker, never servilely bowing down to rank and wealth, as others did, and maintaining his self-respect in whatever condition he was placed. In this delightful biography, we are made to see the superiority of character to genius and the dignity of labor when idleness was the coveted desire of most fortunate men, as well as the almost universal vice of the magnates of the land. Labor, to the mind of Johnson as well as to that of Carlyle, is not only honorable, but is a necessity which nature imposes as the condition of happiness and usefulness. Nor does Carlyle sneer at the wedded life of Johnson, made up of drizzle and dry weather, but reverences his fidelity to his best friend, uninteresting as she was to the world, and his plaintive and touching grief when she passed away. Carlyle, in this essay, exalts a life of letters, however poorly paid, which Pope, in his Dunciad, did so much to depreciate, showing how it contributes to the elevation of a nation and to those lofty pleasures which no wealth can purchase. But it is the moral dignity of Johnson which the essay makes to shine most conspicuously in his character, supported as he was by the truths of religion, in which under all circumstances he proudly glories, and without which he must have made shipwreck of himself amid so many discouragements, maladies, and embarrassments for his greatest labors were made with poverty, distress, and obscurity for his companions. 
until, at last, victorious over every external evil and vile temptation, he emerged into the realm of peace and light, and became an oracle and a sage wherever he chose to go. Johnson was the greatest master of conversation in his day, whose detached sayings are still quoted more often than his most elaborate periods. I apprehend that there was a great contrast between Johnson's writings and his conversation. While the former are Ciceronian, his talk was epigrammatic, terse, and direct, and its charm and power were in his pointed and vehement Saxon style. Had he talked as he wrote, he would have been wearisome and pedantic. Still, like Coleridge and Robert Hall, he preached rather than conversed, thinking what he himself should say rather than paying attention to what others said, except to combat and rebuke them. A discourser, as Macaulay was, not one to suggest interchange of ideas, as Addison did. But neither power of conversation nor learning would have made Johnson a literary dictator. His power was in the force of his character, his earnestness and sincerity, even more than in his genius. I will not dwell on the other review articles which Carlyle wrote in his isolated retreat, since published as miscellanies, on which his fame in no small degree rests, even as the essays of Macaulay may be read when his more elaborate history will lie neglected on the shelves of libraries. Carlyle put his soul into these miscellanies, and the labor and enjoyment of writing made him partially forget his ailments. I look upon those years at Craig and Puddock as the brightest and healthiest of his life, removed as he was from the sight of levities and follies which tormented his soul and irritated his temper. Carlyle contrived to save about two hundred pounds from his literary earnings, so frugal was his life and so free from temptations. His recreation was in wandering on foot or horseback over the silent moors and unending hills, watered by nameless rills and shadowed by mists and vapors. His life was solitary, but not more so than that of Moses amid the deserts of Midian, isolation indeed, but in which the highest wisdom is matured. Into this retreat Emerson penetrated a young man with boundless enthusiasm for his teacher, for Carlyle was a teacher to him as to hundreds of others in this country. Carlyle never had a truer and better friend than Emerson, who opened to him the great reward of recognition in distant America, while yet his own land refused to take knowledge of him. And this friendship continued to the end, an honor to both, for Carlyle never saw in Emerson's writings the genius and wisdom which his American friend admired in the Scottish sage. Nor were their opinions so harmonious as some suppose. Emerson despised Calvinism and had no definite opinions on any theological subject. Carlyle was a Calvinist without the theology of Calvinism, if that be possible. He did not, indeed, believe in historical Christianity, but he had the profoundest convictions of an overruling God, reigning in justice and making the wrath of man to praise him. Carlyle, too, despised everything visionary and indefinite, and had more respect for what is brought about by revolution than by evolution. But of all things, he held in profoundest abhorrence the dreary theories of materialists and political economists. It was the spirit and not the body which stood out in his eyes as of most importance. It was the manly virtues which he reverenced in a man, not his clothes and surroundings. And it was on this lofty spiritual plane that Carlyle and Emerson stood in complete harmony together. I cannot quit this part of Carlyle's life without mention of what I conceive to be his most original and remarkable production, Sartor Resartus, The Stitcher Restitched, or The Tailor Done Over the title of an old Scotch song. It is a quaintly conceived reproduction of the work of an imaginary German professor on The Philosophy of Clothes, 
under which the external figure he includes all institutions customs beliefs in which humanity has draped itself as distinguished from the inner reality of man himself the beginning of all wisdom he says is to look fixedly on clothes or even with armed eyesight till they become transparent and thus in grotesque fashion with amazing vigor he ranges the universe in search of the real in one of his letters to emerson carlyle discussing a project of lecturing in america takes on his sartorial professor's name and writes could any one but appoint me lecturing professor of tufelstrock's science things in general this work was written in his remote solitude yet not published for years after it was finished and for the best of reasons because with all his literary repute carlyle could not find a publisher the sartor was not appreciated and carlyle knowing its value locked it up in his drawer and waited for his time the sartor resartus is a sort of prose poem written with a heart's blood vivid as fire in a dark night a dantean production a revelation probably of the author's own struggles and experiences from the dark gulf of the everlasting nay to the clear and serene heights of the everlasting yea to me the book is full of consolation and encouragement a battle of the spirits with infernal doubts a victory over despair over all external evils and all spiritual foes it is also a bold and grotesque but scorching sarcasm of the conventionalities and hypocrisies of society and a savage thrust at those quackeries which seem to reign in this world in spite of their falsity and shallowness it is not i grant easy to read it is full of conceits and affectations of style a puzzle to some a rebuke to others every page of this unique collection of confessions and meditations of passionate invective and solemn reflection is stamped with the seal of genius and yet was the last of carlyle's writings to be appreciated i believe that this is the ordinary fate of truly original works those that are destined to live the longest especially if they burn no incense to the idols of prevailing worship and be characterized by a style which to say the least is extraordinary flashy brilliant witty yet superficial pictures of external life which everybody has seen and knows are the soonest to find admirers but a revelation of what is not seen this is the work of seers and prophets whose ordinary destiny has been anything other than to wear soft raiment and sit in king's palaces the sartor was at last in eighteen thirty three to eighteen thirty four printed in fraser's magazine meeting no appreciation in england but very enthusiastically received by emerson channing ripley and a group of advanced thinkers in new england through whose efforts it was published here in book form and so in spite of timid london publishers it drifted back to london and a slow-growing fame in our time sixty years later it sells by scores of thousands annually in cheap and in luxurious editions throughout the english-speaking world in respect of early recognition and popularity carlyle differs from his great contemporary macaulay who was so immediately and so magnificently rewarded and yet received no more than his due as the finest prose writer of his day macaulay's essays are generally word pictures of remarkable men and remarkable events but of men of action rather than of quiet meditation his heroes are such men as clive and hastings and pitt not such men as pascal or augustine or leibnitz or goethe but carlyle in his heroes paints the struggling soul in its deepest aspirations and the truths evolved by profound meditations 
These are not such as gain instant popular acceptance, yet they are the longer-lived. The time came at last for Carlyle to leave his retirement among moors and hills, and in 1831 he directed his steps to London, spending the winter with his wife in the great centre of English life and thought, and being well received, so that in 1834 he removed permanently to the metropolis. But he was scarcely less buried at his modest house in Chelsea than he had been on his farm, for he came to London with only two hundred pounds and was obliged to practice the most rigid economy. For two years he labored in his London workshop without earning a shilling and with a limited acquaintance. Not yet was his society sought by the great world which he mocked and despised. Fortunately, he had the genial and agreeable Lee Hunt for a neighbor and Edward Irving for his friend. He was known to the critics by his writings, but his circle of personal friends was small. He was more or less intimate with John Stuart Mill, Charles Austin, Sir William Molesworth, and the advanced section of the philosophical radicals, the very class of men from whom he afterwards was most estranged. None of these men forwarded his fortunes, but they lent him books and helped him at the libraries, for no carpenter can work without tools. The work to which Carlyle now devoted himself was a history of the French Revolution, the principal characters of which he had already studied and written about. It was a subject adapted to his genius for dramatic writing and for the presentation of his views as to retribution. His whole theology, according to Fraude, was underlaid by the belief in punishment for sin, which was impressed upon his mind by his God-fearing parents, and was one of his firmest convictions. The French were, to his mind, the greatest sinners among Christian nations, and therefore were to reap a fearful penalty. To paint in a new and impressive form the inevitable calamities attendant on violated law and justice was the aspiration of Carlyle. He had money enough to last him with economy for two years. In this time he hoped to complete the work. The possibility was due to the intelligent thrift of his wife. Commenting on one of her letters describing their snug little house, he writes, From birth upwards she had lived in opulence, and now, for my sake, had become poor, so nobly poor. Truly her pretty little brag, in this letter, was well founded. No such house for beautiful thrift, quiet, spontaneous, nay, as it were, unconscious, minimum of money, reconciled to human comfort and human dignity, have I anywhere looked upon. He devoted himself to his task with intense interest and was completely preoccupied. In the winter of 1835, after a year of general study, collection of material and writing, and at last, by dint of continual endeavor for many weary weeks, the first volume was completed and submitted to his friend Mill. The valuable manuscript was accidentally and ignorantly destroyed by a servant, and Mill was in despair. Carlyle bore the loss like a hero. He did not chide or repine. If his spirit sunk within him, if his spirit sunk within him, it was when he was alone in his library or in the society of his sympathizing wife. He generously writes to Emerson, I could not complain, or the poor man would have shot himself. We had to gather ourselves together and show a smooth front to it, which happily, though difficult, was not impossible to do. I began again at the beginning, such a wretched, paralyzing torpedo of a task as my hand never found to do. Mill made all the reparation possible. He gave his friend two hundred pounds, but Carlyle would only accept one hundred pounds. Few men could have rewritten with any heart that first volume. It would be almost impossible to revive sufficient interest. The precious inspiration would have been wanting. Yet Carlyle manfully accomplished his task, and I am inclined to think that the second writing was better than the first. 
that he probably left out what was unessential and made a more condensed narrative, a more complete picture, for his memory was singularly retentive. I do not believe that any man could do his best at the first heat. See how the great poets revise and rewrite. Brougham rewrote his celebrated peroration on the trial of Queen Caroline seventeen times. Carlyle had to rewrite his book, but his materials remained. His great pictures were all in his mind. In this second writing, there may have been less emotion, less fire in his descriptions, but there was fire enough, for his vivacity was excessive. Even his work could be pruned, not by others, but by himself. The household at Chelsea was never closer drawn together than in those times of trial. Carlyle lost time and spirits, but he could afford the loss. The entire work was delayed, but was done at last. The final sentence of Volume 3 was written at 10 o'clock on a damp evening, January 14, 1837. This great work, the most ambitious and famous of all Carlyle's writings, and in many respects his best, was not received by the public with the enthusiasm it ought to have awakened. It was not appreciated by the people at large. Ordinary readers were not enraptured by the Iliad swiftness and vividness of the narrative. Its sustained passion, the flow of poetry, the touches of grandeur and tenderness, and the masterly touches by which he made the great actors stand out in their individuality. It seemed to many to be extravagant, exaggerated, at war with all the feudalities of literature. Partisans of all kinds were offended. The style was startlingly broken almost savage in strength, vivid and distinct as lightning. Doubtless the man himself had grown away from the quieter moods of his earlier essays. Frauda quotes this from Carlyle's journal. The poor people seem to think a style can be put off or on, not like a skin, but like a coat. Is not a skin verily a product and close kinfellow of all that lies underneath it? Exact type of the nature of the beast, not to be plucked off without flaying and death? The public is an old woman. Let her maunder and mumble. But the extraordinary merits of the book made a great impression on the cultivated intellects of England. Such men as Geoffrey, Macaulay, Southey, Hallam, Brougham, Thackeray, Dickens, who saw and admitted that a great genius had arisen, whether they agreed with his views or not. In America, we may be proud to say, the work created general enthusiasm and its republication through Emerson's efforts brought some money as well as larger fame to its author. Of the first monies that Emerson sent Carlyle as fruits of this adventure, the dyspeptic Scotchman wrote that he was half resolved to buy myself a sharp little nag with twenty of these transatlantic pounds, and ride him till the other thirty be eaten. I will call the creature Yankee, my kind friends. And Yankee was duly bought and ridden. Carlyle still remained in straitened circumstances, although his reputation was now established. In order to assist him in his great necessities, his friends got up lectures for him, which were attended by the elite of London. He gave several courses in successive years during the London season, which brought him more money than his writings at the time, gave him personal éclat, and added largely to his circle of admirers. His second course of twelve lectures brought him three hundred pounds a year's harvest, and a large sum for lectures in England, where the literary institutions rarely paid over five pounds for a single lecture. Even in later times, the Philosophical Society of Edinburgh, which commanded the finest talent, paid only ten pounds to such men as Frauda and the Archbishop of York. But lecturing, to many men an agreeable excitement, 
seems to have been very unpleasant to Carlyle, even repulsive. Though the lectures brought both money and fame, he abominated the delivery of them. They broke his rest, destroyed his peace of mind, and depressed his spirits. Nothing but direst necessity reconciled him to the disagreeable task. He never took any satisfaction or pride in his success in this field, nor was his success probably legitimate. People went to see him as a new literary lion, to hear him roar, not to be edified. He had no peculiar qualification for public speaking, and he affected to despise it. Very few English men of letters have had this gift. Indeed, popular eloquence is at a discount among the cultivated classes in England. They prefer to read at their leisure. Popular eloquence best thrives in democracies, as in that of ancient Athens. Aristocrats disdain it and fear it. In their contempt for it, they even affect hesitation and stammering, not only when called upon to speak in public, but also in social converse, until the halting style has come to be known among Americans as very English. In absolute monarchies, eloquence is rare except in the pulpit or at the bar. Cicero would have had no field, and would not probably have been endured, in the reign of Nero. Yet Basset and Bartolo were the delights of Louis the Fourteenth. What would that monarch have said to the speeches of Mirabeau? After the publication in 1837 of the French Revolution, that roaring conflagration of anarchies, that series of graphic pictures rather than a history or even a criticism. It was some time before Carlyle could settle down upon another great work. He delivered lectures, wrote tracts and essays, gave vent to his humors, and nursed his ailments. He was now famous, a man whom everybody wished to see and know, especially Americans when they came to London, but whom he generally snubbed, as he did me, and pronounced them bores. It was at this time that he made the acquaintance of Monckton Milnes, afterward Lord Houghton, who invited him to breakfast, where he met other notabilities, among them Bunsen, the Prussian ambassador at London, Lord Mahon, the historian, and Mr. Baring, afterward Lord Ashburton, the warmest and truest of his friends, who extended to him the most generous hospitalities. Carlyle was now in what is called high society and was taking life easy, writing little, yet reading much, especially about Oliver Cromwell, whose life he thought of writing. His lectures at this period were more successful than ever, attended by great and fashionable people, and from them his chief income was derived. End of section 11